Good evening, church. What I want to kind of say is I have looked at these parables and um, I made a statement last Sunday in regards to them that if you notice over and over in the Bible, uh, Jesus spoke in parables. And I made the observation that in Matthew chapter 1 through chapter 12, he, he did that. But as we venture in chapter 13, Jesus' entire message became a parable. And that was for a particular reason. He was trying to kind of encourage people who desire to hear, to know what he said is to begin to discover what he had said. And they would do that by asking questions. And if you know the Sadducees and Pharisees were very antagonistic uh, against Jesus, and they was really not interested in learning, but more or less trying to insult him in some aspect that people would not receive him as the Messiah. So he began to to speak in parables. And the parables were to help the people who desire to understand spiritual truth. The parables compel listeners to discern truth who honestly search for it. And I think that's what kind of came out of the message last week. We began to have individuals searching the scriptures, not taking what someone says from the pulpit. And I, I think that's a, that's something positive, I believe it is. But also, it's, I, I want to bring this to your attention that it's important to understand that no parable by itself completely describes our preparation. It's so important to really understand that. Instead, each parable paints one part of the whole picture. And that's what's going on. And let me just try to kind of show you what I'm talking about. I have some notes here that I just scribbled some things on yesterday. And if you, depending upon who's counting the parables, there's at least 40 or 50 parables in the New Testament. And I kind of went in there and I looked at a lot of them and I tried to kind of lump them together in regards to the message. And let's just say, for instance, uh, here's one here. Say uh, the, the parable of the hidden treasure. That particular parable is insinuating to us the cost of discipleship. Okay? Take, for instance, the parable of the pearl of great value. That particular parable also is insinuating and describing to us the cost of discipleship. Here's a man that that sold everything to buy one field. You know, cost of discipleship. Also, the parable of the pearl of great value. That particular parable insinuates or describes to us also the cost of discipleship. 
A person is selling everything to buy one pearl. Now here's one here that you really are familiar with, and there may be some difference in what this particular parable insinuates, but the parable of the two sons. You remember the father had these two sons. I kind of lumped that into a evangelistic parable. You know, I look in terms of one boy leaves home, you know, his father's looking for him on a day-to-day basis. He returns, he forgives him, but also here's another boy who is at home who is unsaved. So you kind of see how I'm kind of looking at this. It's very evangelistic. Okay? Now here's one you're also familiar with, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we know that that parable is a lesson in regards to neighborly love. So I hope you really see what I'm saying, that these parables paints one part of the whole picture. So when you put all these together, it really demonstrates to us what our responsibilities are in the kingdom of God. Now, now, coming to this parable, we're going to discuss this afternoon. And if you turn to Matthew chapter 25, turn there with me. Matthew 25. And uh, if you notice in, 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 in that particular chapter, there's two parables. And also there was another one that I kind of lumped together. But let me just kind of say what I want to say and hope that you can follow what I'm saying here. You remember the parable of the two servants. I think that's over in Matthew chapter 24. And this particular parable is demonstrating a lesson about faithfulness. We as Christians must be faithful. Now, this parable in chapter 25, the parable of the talents. There's another parable of the talent, and that particular parable is about faithfulness as well. And the parable of the ten bridesmaids, once again, is a parable about being faithful. Being faithful and looking for the return of Jesus Christ. So what I'm trying to get us to see is you can't separate these parables. They are part of a big picture, and they are indicative of our responsibility. And if you recall, Matthew 1 through 12, Jesus is describing what the kingdom is going to be like. And when he started in chapter 13 on, he is describing how we're going to enter into the kingdom. So with that said, 
Matthew chapter 25, and your title might be the parable of the ten virgin. And that particular parable is given to underscore the importance of being ready for Christ's return at any event. Even if he delays longer than expected, for when he does return, there will be no second chance for the unprepared. While all share as people of God, the church is accord a unique relationship to the master. The lamps in that parable seem to refer to their lives, which are either prepared or unprepared. The all refers to that which prepares them to give forth light and may properly be illustrated of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Now, the symbolism of the parable is the groom is symbolic of Jesus. Now, this is a parable in the natural realm, and we're going to walk it into the spiritual realm, and that's what we're doing. So we got a groom in the natural realm, and then in the spiritual realm, Jesus Christ is the groom. In the natural realm, this young person has a bride. In the spiritual realm, we are the bride of Jesus Christ. And this is the parallel that Jesus is trying to get these people to see and understand because he's taking something natural in their environment that they can relate to, and hopefully they can have one of these aha moments and say, I understand what you're saying, Master. So now, the arrival of the groom is the rapture. So when Jesus returned, he's the groom, he's going to return for his church, and we're going to be raptured out. Now, the ten virgin or the ten bridesmaids are symbolic of the church. The wise were ready to meet him, the foolish was not. Once again, the all is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And we know that. When a person is born again, they receive the Holy Spirit, thus will have all in their lamps. This is a believer who understands that they can do nothing on his own, but is totally dependent upon God for his righteousness and anointing and God's word of truth, comfort, and strength. Now, now Matthew 25, as I said, the parable of the ten virgins, the theme of the parable is very simple. It is not a very complex parable when we all can relate to a wedding in the natural realm. The parable is meant to teach us that Jesus is coming, that he is coming to judge sinners and to reward the righteous, that he is coming in a sudden and unexpected moment, and everyone should be prepared, and after there will be no second chance. People may knock on the door, all they want, but the door will be shut. The day of opportunity will have come and gone forever. So stand with me as we read the inspired word of God, Matthew chapter 25, and I'm only going to read the first 
three or four verses. I'm not going to look at that whole parable because the only thing that I want to do is I want to look at the characteristic of these ten bridesmaids. They are characteristic. So it starts out as verse 1, then, and we know that then is referring to a time. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins. Uh, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them was wise and five were foolish. They that was foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessel with their lamps. Thus in the reading of the word of God. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. You may be seated. And as I said earlier, the only thing I want to look at in those verses is the characteristics of those ten individuals. And I'm going to refer to them as uh, bridesmaids from here on out, the ten bridesmaids. Uh, I almost want to say, well, all people in our church are divided into two distinct groups. And we're looking at these two groups, and Christ called these two groups either they wise or they foolish. The wise are converted church members. The foolish are unconverted church members. Now, when you look at those ten based upon our reading, it's very, very little that you can distinguish between the ten. They all have their wedding garment on. They are all chosen bridesmaids. They all attend to the bride. They all have their torches. And they are at first indistinguishable. But they are not alike. And this is the message of the parable. Verse 2. It says five of them were wise and five were foolish. And that's Jesus talking, so he is the searcher of the heart, and he knows them. And the only thing that separates the ten is the oil. And we know that oil represents the Holy Spirit. Now understand that the Lord did not say one of them didn't have oil. He said five of them did not have it. And I don't want to make some type of mathematical conclusion out of that. What that say to me that he sees a large number of people in the church that are not saved. In other words, they certainly did not do what 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says. And it says this, let a man examine himself, examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. They were deceived, and now when everything is revealed, they are naked. They have no oil. They possess not the necessary internal grace of holiness. In fact about it, they even ask the other five, give us of your oil for our lamps are going out. Now, we know the saved cannot save the lost. Every person must have his own salvation. Every person must make his own life right with God. 
and they was asking for some of the other bridesmaid oil. And I have often said, and some of you might have heard me say this, when the saved get saved, then the lost will get saved. Now I want to look at what is required in true salvation. And this is not going to be exhausted, but let's just look at this in terms of this parable. It goes on to say they are called wise because they are concerned about the salvation of their souls. They are concerned about the soul is a sign of wisdom. Because what happened to your soul is highly important. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10. And they're going to say, the Bible, And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. Daniel 12.3. Those five were prepared to meet him daily if he would return any moment. On the other hand, neglecting the salvation of the soul is a sign of great foolishness. Those who neglect the salvation of their soul are called fools or foolishness in the Bible. The difference between the wise and the foolish may seem small, but to God, they are as different as light and darkness. Thus the wise are called children of light, and the foolish are said to be in darkness. In this parable, it is clear that Christ makes a great distinction between the wise and the foolish in the church. They are professed Christians. They are those who claim to belong to Christ. They are those who have gathered with the assembly of Christian people to await the coming of the Lord. They are those who say they know Christ and they anticipate his coming. They are those who say they believe and they know about the wedding and they know that the time is near and they even say they were made their preparation. They have on their wedding garment and they have their torch. It is clear in the parable that the difference does not come from church attendance because both groups represent those who attend church. And all of them think they are converted. They all have made a profession of faith. They all believe mentally in Jesus. They all go forth to meet Jesus. So the great difference between the wise and the foolish is not that the wise believe the Bible and the foolish do not. They all took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom who is none other than Jesus Christ. Both groups were in the church. Both groups said they believe in Christ. Both groups expected to go to heaven when Christ came for them. Both groups expected to be raptured. But the wise have certain characteristics that the foolish do not have. And that's what I want to look at. And a first characteristic that the wise possess that the foolish does not is a strong commitment to the cause of Jesus Christ. 
God requires that you give him your heart. He commands, give me thine heart. Without giving your heart to Christ, no real service can be done for God. You cannot serve God and something else. A strong commitment to Christ and his church is therefore absolutely necessary. A false commitment is disgusting to God. So we see a characteristic of the wise, and that's what I want to look at, is a strong commitment to the cause of Christ. Another characteristic of the wise, a willingness to give up the world. Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separated, says the Lord. If any man will be friends of the world, he is the enemy of God. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, 2. So you see, the wise in this parable that we are looking at, they were willing to give up the world. Also, the wise, another characteristic is a willing to suffer for Christ. If any man will live godly in Christ, he shall suffer persecution. He must be willing to suffer shame and reproach for the cause of Christ. If he is not prepared for this, he is not prepared to be converted. Another distinguishing characteristic of the wise, of the converted, is a willingness to take part in all the duties of a Christian. And listen to this. He that says, I know him, and keepeth not his commandment, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If there is any duty which you do not intend to perform, it would not be wise to claim that you are converted. And here's another characteristic, a real faith in Christ. And if the faith is not enough, for the devil believes and trembles, True faith in Christ makes Christianity real and changes the whole way of life. That faith which works by love and purifies the heart that overcomes the world. And I like that verse over in James and it talks about the devil he believes and trembles. And I say this and I say it with love and please understand that. You really see that Believing in God really really qualifies people to only be a demon. And I I say that with sensitivity because they say the devil believes and trembles. He doesn't believe and put his faith and trust in God. He believes and trembles. And that's why I make that observation in terms of that. And if I said anything to insult anyone, I apologize. But I think the Bible speaks for itself in regards to the devil believes the Bible. He believes that Jesus is who he say he is. In fact about it, over and over here on earth, when Jesus went into demonized territory, they always recognized Jesus. They always recognized Jesus Christ. And that is true for the simple reason that They was in heaven when a lot of this stuff was happening, but by virtue of them rebelling, they was kicked out of heaven. 
So they know who Jesus Christ is. They know who he is. And that's why they was always able to identify him when he approached them here on earth. But Jesus did not care for them to be a testimony of him. And another characteristic of um, the converted in the church or looking at those five brides maids is a real experience of the new birth. For without the new birth, there can be no real conversion. And everyone that loveth is born of God. And so real faith and real love are both the fruit of the new birth. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Without the change that occur in the new birth, you cannot be a friend of God. And without this change, you cannot be a child of God. Those who are born again find that old things are passed away and all things become new. These are some of the characteristics of the wise person who is converted. Now let me just kind of say this in regards to why would those five say they are converted when they are not. The foolish five maids took no oil in their lamps. And we know that the oil represents the spirit of Jesus Christ. This means that they did not have the Holy Spirit and were thus not converted. And here, Romans 8, 9, If any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. This shows that the foolish maids were false converts. They had never been truly born again. Now, you perhaps are aware that in the early days of Christianity, persecution kept many from making false profession of conversion. And this is still true in communistic countries and Muslim land. But even there, some have made false profession of conversion. In the fear of persecution and death were here in America, I believe the number of false converts would be far less than it is today. If there were persecution within the Church of America, perhaps there would be thousands that would leave the church here. One reason that many profess to be converted when they are not is the influence a bad example. Uh, they see people who profess to be converted falls away from the church. In fact, about it, someone had sent me an email in regards to uh, a pastor just recently, uh, Mr. What, Josh Harris, had fell away, apostatized from a church that he had preached at for, what, 12 or 13 years. And, and that's why I say many of them is due to the fact of bad examples. You know, I think about what we are learning in First Timothy and Second Timothy and Book of Titus, and we really see that those young men had good examples to stand firm in the faith. And, and I think that's what we do not have in our church today, is good examples of holy people that young peoples can emulate. And, and, and you think about the world. The world has 
all kind of examples out there for their young people to emulate. You know, if you want to be this, emulate this person. If you want to be this, emulate that person. And by doing so, they go all the way up to the top. All you got to do is look at your sports, look at your entertainment business. Over and over, you see young boys at an early age say they want to be like so-and-so, so-and-so. And it happens because they have these examples to go by. And that's what the Church of Jesus Christ really needs today, a good example for young people to, to, to remain strong in the faith. So those bad examples, what happened is people, they see people who go forth, they go on their way because they are choked with the cares of this life. And after a few years, they have seen some of these same people deny the very idea of conversion, which I just spoke of. Some have gone so far as to even ridicule the idea of conversion. Others even write as well as speak against revival and real conversion. And yet, many of them have dared to say they are Christian. Even as they fight against true Christianity, this confuses the unconverted people who remain in the church and they begin to think there may be any such way of conversion. There may not be a way of conversion, which confused people become like the foolish five bridesmaids of whom Christ gave warning. The foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. Others continued for a long time in a state of anxious concern on the conviction without finding relief. After a while, their conscience become hardened and gradually become quiet, and so the foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. Another person on a deep conviction thinks he has done too much already. He grows tired and discouraged and finally decides that there is no such thing as conversion, and so he becomes like the foolish who took their lamps and took no oil with them. Sometimes the sinner who has been on a conviction and anxiety for a long time thinks that he should say he is saved. And by saying it, he will be relieved. This has been followed with sad disappointment. No love for God, no renewing of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes this ends with great security, and they then say, I know I am converted. Now they are doomed in this way that they were foolish, took their lamps, and took no oil with them. The wise, it is said, took oil in their vessels. And that was the preparation. They was preparing for this delay. This showed their wisdom. The condition of their heart was they consider all important. They were very careful to make sure that their hearts were converted. They were convinced that there must be a change in their heart, a change which was not there before, which was not in their Adamic nature. They did not go, they did not dare to go out to meet the Lord without their hearts being converted and changed by the grace of God. However difficult it was, they knew that they must have a real conversion like the wise man who built his house upon a rock 
they dug deep. They were willing to be searched and convicted until their foundation was settled on the rock of ages. None other than Jesus Christ himself. But not so with the five foolish. When they proclaimed that they were converted, they did not pay deep attention to their hearts. When they met with unexpected difficulties and found the way was so narrow, they avoided further conviction and searching and began their Christian journey without any grace in their hearts. Since they avoided the pain and self-denial of real conversion, they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. And another reason why they are called foolish, because they were wicked. Not any different from other sinners, dead in their trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2.1 but they were also foolish. They were both foolish and wicked because they claimed to be converted without having real conversion. They were both foolish and wicked because they dare to call on the name of the Lord. And the Bible says, except you be converted, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. A false conversion is both foolish and wicked because Christ has commanded us to strive to enter in at the straight gate, Luke 13, 24. And they refuse to do so. They are both foolish and wicked because they refuse to obey Christ when he said, enter into the straight gate, Matthew 7, 13. The parable of the wise and the foolish, ten maids end with this Terrible warning. Afterward came also the foolish ten maids saying, the five virgin, the five foolish maids saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Matthew 25, 11 through 12. The foolish virgin came when it was too late. There are many that will seek admission into heaven when it is too late. They demand entrance and yet are shut out. Lift up in a fond conceit of their own goodness and yet thrust down to hell. Tonight, as it was said earlier, we welcome the faithful I'd like to encourage us this evening. You know, and sometimes we talk to the choir in regards about the message of God. But one thing I can say is this. We need to take the message back home. That's where the message needs to go because we have lost loved ones who we desire to share heaven with us. And I think a message of this nature, speaking to the faithful, we need to share it with our lost loved ones. And I have lost members in my family. 
that I'm trying to witness to based upon this very parable as well. You know, so understand some tough things might have been said, but once again, God only have had a remnant from day one. And perhaps I stand here and look out, and that's what I see. But I'm encouraging this remnant to take the message out in the highways and byways. Take the message to our loved one. So that's my encouragement here this afternoon. For you to live as though Jesus Christ is coming back today. And plan your life as though Jesus is not coming for a thousand years. Look at your life. Look at the Savior. Stay prepared. And let's get ready to feast together. Until then. Anywhere, Lord. Anytime, Lord. Any cause, Lord. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, in this hour, there is no greater priority, Lord, for us than to make sure that our hearts are prepared by trusting in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we sit here this afternoon knowing without a doubt that there are loved ones in our family that are lost, that need to hear this message. We ask, O oh Lord, that you will implant in each of us a desire for him and a desire for his kingdom above all else and have that same desire for those who are lost in our families. And Lord, that we may truly trust not ourselves, nor our faith, but the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God people say, Amen.